just gotten really interested in the idea of the web as an OS. And there was a bit of this built by engineers for engineers mentality. We started to see more success in the use of APIs a little bit after the 2009 API craze. And that's because just as we're treating APIs as a product problem today, we're starting to treat the embed frameworks the same way. Hey, this is Brian, and you're listening to Jamstack Radio, a bi-weekly series where we discuss the Jamstack, a new way of building websites and apps that are fast, secure, and simple to work with. Jamstack Radio is brought to you by Heavybit, a program dedicated to helping startups take their developer products to market. For more information, visit heavybit.com. If you're interested in being a guest on the show, or if you'd like to suggest a topic, find us on Twitter at Jamstack Radio. So welcome to another installment of Jamstack Radio. In the house, we've got Jeremy Glassenberg. Thank you. It's uh, it's good to be here. Cool. So Jeremy, we we chatted actually. We had an introduction here at Heavybit, and you have like specific background and knowledge around products and APIs. So do you want to just talk about your background and so, sort of why you're here today? Uh, yeah. Well, basically, I've been working in uh, the world of product management for a little over eleven years, and for a little over thirteen years, I've had a uh, just kind of a crazy irrational obsession with uh, with APIs. So uh, that combination brought me over to, to Heavybit over time. Uh, but basically, um, well, if we start from the beginning, I, I just gotten uh, really interested in the idea of the web as an OS while back in college. So some of us remember uh, iGoogle. It was basically this customized dashboard that Google had where yeah. you iframed in a bunch of third-party things onto one web page. I was interested in actually making what's now called a web top. It's basically iGoogle on caffeine, a web page that looks like a desktop operating system. Gotcha. If we're into the whole idea of just the web as an OS, you can do everything on the web. So you could install third-party apps in this web page, and you would just iframe things in, run some JavaScript, but basically run everything from one web page. The idea was interesting, more interesting than it was uh, valuable. So I had enough sense not to actually build this. Others attempted it, and I think they saw the same results. People kind of liked the idea, but the user experience really didn't make sense. So while I was still really into the idea of just bringing everything onto the web, letting everything work off the web, the web as an OS wasn't going to be like a desktop operating system. It was going to be in the services talking to each other. So I just started hacking away at random APIs, while at the same time, being on this like academic trajectory to become uh, a product manager, which back then was get your engineering degree, then go and get an MBA. Uh, we don't need that anymore in product managers, but that's another topic. Yeah. Um, but that was the path I took to basically find my way into product management while still being really hacky and trying out whatever web API I could find back in 2006, 2007. Found my way over to on Craigslist, a job listing for the startup that I hadn't heard of before, uh, that was Box, where I basically got... (laughs) It was the first time I got to actually see a product management job that was specifically for APIs. And so that was it for the next 11 years. I've just been doing the product management thing, uh, building out web APIs and other developer-facing tools. Naturally, that progressed to make my way over to Heavybit. I've been mentoring other accelerators and advising companies on product strategy and platform strategy, and uh, eventually, that just you know I kept kind of running into Heavybit. Uh, one of the companies I advised found their way over here. 
uh, was Mosif, and as Heavybit expanded to be interested in addition to marketing for platforms, yeah. they were interested in uh, in product as well. So here we are. Yeah, and literally here we are. Like the industry is really sort of woken up to uh, like APIs and APIs of product. And I know you have a, a few blog posts and a few conversations out there publicly that pe- listeners can sort of find out and check it out. Like definitely mention those uh, within the conversation, but. I'm curious of like how do we get to this point where now we could actually have pieces of products embedded to other products and like how do we get here and like what is the world that we're living in today? Yeah, this has been a recent topic of of interest for me and actually it's been a long time topic of interest. It's just uh now there's more general interest in the market, and I get yeah. to talk about it a lot more. <laughs> I've advocated in the past just treating APIs as a product problem. Uh, a lot of people have been advocating that, and that's allowed for better trends in not only the rise in APIs, but the rise in successful APIs that are actually usable. Now, when you know, I talked earlier about my interest in iGoogle, and that was an example of bringing third parties into your interface. In iGoogle's case, it fade out over time. When I started getting into APIs and working at Box back in 2008, we saw other attempts at these UI embedded integrations where besides external APIs, these were platforms that fundamentally allowed third parties to just fit right into their interface. Facebook had Facebook Canvas, LinkedIn, and uh, there's a company called Ning. Only a few people remember that one, but there were a handful of these companies in the social networking space that adopted open social. And they were allowing third parties to create these apps that could be embedded on their users' profiles. So there was a time when this all happened, uh, when I was still obsessed with the whole idea of the web as an OS, and that all kind of faded out. Really, nothing worked back then. But there's a rise in it now. So now, besides just writing about the usual treat APIs as a product problem, I get to start advising more on the strategy of those embedded frameworks. Yeah, and like I think you in our conversations, you mentioned you had some experience with AMP and working with that. Would this fall within that the world of embedded frameworks? Uh, I know that that's very SEO heavy and maybe quite different than what we're talking about. AMP, it's coming up. What we've historically seen when it came to these embedded frameworks is uh, iframing. Okay. The easiest way to just let another web page kind of get gotcha. plugged in. There are a lot of different ways to make it work. Salesforce has you know Apex, Salesforce Lightning. So there are other platforms that allow server-side code to be hosted in their frameworks, or they create a new kind of markup language to allow some very custom integrations baked very deeply into their system, but the client psycho can be hosted in their system. So there have been a lot of attempts at making this work. AMP is coming up, and we can talk about that, I think, a little bit later in this, but basically it may solve a lot of problems. I'm not seeing it adopted heavily just yet, but it is something that the successful platform providers are all thinking about. Gotcha. So what's the entry point into like embedding and these embed frameworks? Because so, I know with things like you mentioned iGoogle, like there might be some sort of learning curve, or I know with Lightning, like you have to learn the Salesforce way and their interaction with their framework. And like now we have like Electron where now you can just embed that into your Mac OS or now Windows at this point now. And you can embed that as like a little drop down in your your taskbar. So is there like the electron for embedding on the web today? Or are we what are we talking about here? We're starting to get there. 
And it actually starts from a tech standpoint, often just with iframing. The old system, it's still pretty common among the newer platforms. The biggest difference that I'm seeing today from what we saw 10, 12 years ago in these attempts, it's one of my opinions the reason why we started to see more success in the use of APIs a little bit after the 2009 API craze. Yeah. And that's because just as we're treating APIs as a product problem today, we're starting to treat the embed frameworks the same way. At the time that embed frameworks were starting to get popular, APIs were also generally getting popular, and there was a bit of this built-by-engineers-for-engineers mentality, which there's nothing necessarily wrong with that, but if they weren't treating this the same way they were treating other product problems, which is namely understand your customer, understand your personas, understand their pain points, the problems that they have, and how are we going to solve them, as opposed to we're going to build a bunch of features that we think are really cool, well, if you apply the proper product process, in general, you have product market fit. Yeah. So APIs struggled in their early days. A lot of companies just built APIs because they saw other API companies being successful. After they actually said, well, let's only build APIs when we see a customer need, and let's design them according to the needs of you know, our partners, APIs started to get successful. During that time, the iframe embedded experience just kind of just went dark. But they're coming back now, and where I'm seeing success, it's just in the companies that understand to treat this like a product problem. So, you know, in API world, it's your customer's the developer. What are the apps they're going to build? How do we make it as easy as possible for them to integrate? Yeah. When it comes to these embedded integrations with third parties, no matter what, you're going to have more than one persona. You're going to have the developers who are building these integrations. And you're also going to have the customer, the consumer, someone who's experiencing this in your UI. If we look at companies like Stripe and Twilio that have great APIs, they were fundamentally developer-facing. Where we see these embed experiences, they're usually in companies that have a core consumer, user-facing product with a complementary developer platform. So you now have to think through, what are the problems that my primary customer has that are going to be solved by third parties, and then how do we make it as easy as possible for that to happen? When you think about it that way, it's not just about throwing iframes in places that you think are cool, it's placing them where you can tell that there could be a good story to solve real customer problems. Do you have an example of someone who's done this correctly that people can maybe take a look at and admire? So... Everyone who I'm going to highlight here are emphatic that they're still experimenting. Yeah. But I think Trello and Shopify are, I think, great examples of applying this kind of a tactic. They're using iframes, they're trying out other things, and you can tell that they've positioned in their interface very intelligently places where it just makes sense for third parties to fit with their customer experience. Interesting. My entry in the web and actually web development, so I've used the web for a long time. Um, not since inception, but for a very long time. My intro to web development was like shortly after this API craze. But I've always got like my hand slap when it's like, oh, maybe we can do an iframe to sort of like embed this thing in part of our product to try something out. And usually because I didn't come through that experience and maybe when it was not as great as today, I've always had let's not go that route. So are we at this point as developers that we, we can actually push back and say, no, but we can try this. Like Performance is not going to take a huge hit, and there are frameworks that we can leverage to sort of get us most of the way there. 
So there are alternatives to iframes, yeah. uh, but I find that iframes are still popular. Things have improved in addition to the user experience on the technology front to make iframes more feasible. I find it's the easiest place to start. But the top platforms, they are also thinking of other options. If we look at iframes in particular, when we treat this as a product problem, rather than do the iGoogle model, which was a simple page, things are just iframed there. I've seen very commonly you know, the iframing just happening in a dashboard or the app is, is in a sidebar. What if you're in the world of invoicing, you want to provide payment options in the invoicing interface? So you're going to now enable a hook in the invoicing interface. Yeah. So companies are thinking through where do things fit. In Trello's case, there are apps that work on a project board, but there are also apps that just fit into a single project card. And so they decide where do these things happen. And that can still happen with iframes combined with you know, just user experience and letting the developers know where their iframes can fit. But there are alternative technologies. Sorry I'm bouncing around a bit here, yeah. but if we stay on, on the iframe, what has improved, in addition to you know, thinking through the user experience, yes, there have been performance improvements, namely computers are faster now. In the past, platforms were in fact shut down because they understood the pages were just taking too long to load or crashing if there were more than three apps installed by a user. So certain platforms were designed so that only one app could load at a time, but it was still limiting. And there are also security concerns. There still are. There are new restrictions you can apply. Uh, new cross-site scripting has been restricted, requirement for you know SSL if you're site is SSL, the iframe has to be SSL. That actually didn't exist back in you know 2006 through 2008. Yeah, I believe it. Yeah, so there are other security holes and new rules you can apply to iframes now that give a little bit more, more power, but there still is that concern that you're allowing a third party to run scripts that could either cause a performance issue or there are other security implications, intentional or either malicious or, or unintentional, accidental. And then you also have to consider besides the issue of performance and security, people aren't just using your service on the web anymore. Mobile apps are very popular, and iframing as an experience just doesn't work that well on mobile. So that's forced platform providers to think of alternatives. As examples there, uh, Gmail, uh, they don't have iframing for their their add-ons program. They have cards which is basically you're allowed to use a certain set of buttons and input options, a very limited set of UI items that were defined by Google. You're not allowed to just like write JavaScript that runs right in, in the client side. Now, I've spoken with some members of the team, and, and along with others who've actually gone the card route, the reasons for these kind of cards are both usability and security. Sometimes a security team just says absolutely not for iframes. But quite consistently, they also say this is the only way we're going to make the platform work on mobile. It's limiting. We're really restricting what developers can do with the UI. But on the plus, we're allowing the, the partners to actually run these apps within a mobile application. And that's, that's very new. If you have a Gmail add-on today, yeah, when you open up the Gmail app on mobile, you can actually run these third-party apps on mobile. Okay. Yeah, I've I've been pretty far removed from the Gmail app for sure. I've been on a tear trying out since uh, basically since Dropbox's uh, 
mail app, I think. I forgot what it was called. They sort of shut that down. I've been trying every single email app known to man since then and uh, haven't really touched Gmail in a while. But I, I remember back in the day, I had add-ons for almost everything. Like you have the add-on for LinkedIn where you can actually, if someone emails you, you can see their LinkedIn profile directly in Gmail. So it's interesting that they have an embeddable framework on Gmail, which are these things called cards. So it brings me to my next question. Like today is the day on Twitter I saw Figma announced their integrations platform so you can integrate within Figma. So Figma being the design tool, I don't use it very often. Uh, mainly designers show me what it looks like and I sort of mirror what's in there. But what I'm getting at is there's like a bit of a focus on tools becoming platforms to have integrators on there. So like Zeit was one that came out a few weeks ago. I know Netlify has their their platform as well and obviously Heroku add-ons, Gmail add-ons. Like everybody's having like some sort of integration platform and then they have these large developer conferences eventually. So where do we stand between do we do embeddable frameworks and have people embed onto their platform or do API integrations like or is the world all the same? Like is there really no difference? Like what's what's your opinion on that? From a technology standpoint, you're not going to have these embedded integrations work unless you have a good set of APIs. Yeah. Now, to make your platform work really well, you're going to have a set of custom APIs that work only really with these kind of integrations. For instance, when I was back at Box, we had a system where you would you know, right-click on a file, edit it in Google Docs. You could you know, right-click on an image and edit an image editor, send a file to DocuSign. Those third parties had to be able to send the files back into Box. Yeah. And so we had these special overwrite APIs to overwrite a specific file and scopes for our tokens so that when these apps were run, they only had access to you know, that file, yeah. not anything else in the, uh, in the user's account. So from a tech standpoint, they're going to overlap. Now, we do have to think through use cases here. And also, what's the business model? What's the value point of your platform? If we look at you know, Facebook, they had Facebook Canvas and Facebook Connect. I've worked with other platforms that want to have that Facebook Canvas kind of model, the embed framework, because they want to be the center of everything. I've even seen cases where they don't want an external API because they don't want to be brought into other services. They have to be the center. I've gotten those companies usually to change their mindset by saying it benefits to have both. Yeah. Because when you have that kind of API, in these cases it was usually like a single sign-on kind of thing like Facebook Connect. You know, Facebook Connect, you know, it's external to Facebook, but it's basically making Facebook more the center of like everything on the internet. Now people are logging when they register an account, they register with Facebook. Yeah. Which is controversial because now Facebook knows even more about you. Yeah. But both the external API and the embed frameworks can serve that purpose. What I do find, though, is there are a certain limited set of use cases for the embed framework. For the external API, it could be having integrations with partners that are going to bring you customers. It could be also that those external integrations are solving problems for your customers. So in that case, you are the distribution channel. You're bringing those partners to your customers. They're helping you close your deals. But in the world of embed frameworks, these things are in your interface, Consistently, you're the distribution channel. So this is not about getting new users through partners. Sometimes indirectly it is, but usually this is about enhancing the experience of your product to maybe improve the NPS and customer retention. But your partners are building apps in your system on the assumption that you are bringing them users. This is surprisingly 
important to reiterate to companies because during the last API craze, when companies were launching these embedded experiences, there are a lot of things they hadn't thought through, including the value proposition. So they might have a few hundred thousand users, a small percentage of whom are active, thinking that having this framework is going to somehow make them as popular as Facebook, when they didn't understand it was the other way around. You have to have a certain saturation point, a certain number of users. This is a marketplace model. You have to either see the supply or the demand for app marketplaces quite consistently. You have to have demand first, users using your product for other reasons, and then say we're going to open up the third-party system for partners to enhance our experience for our existing user base. Yeah, so you mentioned a couple times this API craze, and I remember back in the day, like we had, for example, the Netflix API, like it existed. Like right now, it doesn't exist publicly anymore. But then you could have like all these other tools that you could build on top of Netflix, and you could find out what shows were trending. And I think another one that's popular is Twitter, who's kind of reversed a lot of their open API stuff. So my question is, like, how do you prevent? Sort of API lockout and, and like embedding into other people's platforms and being locked out eventually. Because I, I imagine that's going to be a fear for people if like this is their number one driver for getting user engagement or new users and attention and marketing. I imagine a lot of these companies are small when they sort of take that leap. So how do you prevent this in the future? So for platforms run by teams that are high in developer empathy, they don't like shutting things down on their developer community. They like backwards compatibility. They want to make sure that what we build is likely to last for a long time. We don't want to break things too easily that you know harm our, our developer community. Things that I generally advocate for APIs are just as applicable for embed frameworks, although in many ways embed frameworks can be more sensitive to these issues. When launching any new set of APIs, I like to start conservative and then go liberal. Part of the problem we had with Facebook in the past and Twitter in the past, and they acknowledged these mistakes. They felt they opened up their platform too much and they didn't like what partners were doing and they had to scale back afterwards. That's more dangerous than starting light, seeing how it goes. And then as developers ask for things and as you test the waters, you expand. That's a much safer route. So if the team is especially concerned, and frankly, we all should be concerned about how third parties are using our APIs, start conservative and expand from there. Um, I'm also emphatic of backwards compatibility, that when you're designing your APIs, design them such that you can extend them without breaking existing applications. Now for these sort of embed frameworks, well, if we look at the issue of you know, backwards compatibility, it's not just about you know, changing your APIs can break things. It's changing your UI can break things for these third parties. Yeah. So you're now talking backwards compatibility for your interface. And often the interface is not designed by a platform team. There are other product managers who are focused on your UI who now have to deal with this challenge. So, so as an example, I saw with, uh, with Gmail, before the recent add-on uh, program, they did attempt something where you could actually embed these little iframed things on the left sidebar, like underneath your labels of Gmail. And uh, one day, Gmail decided to adjust their interface, changing the width of that sidebar, shrinking it a little bit which just was going to break everything. 
So if you're allowing now these third parties in your interface, well, you have backwards compatibility is harder to maintain. You have to be ready for that. Also, if you did open things up too much and scale back, for APIs, okay, you may bother your partners and the users of those partner integrations. Twitter did that. I'm okay making fun of them because their CEO apologized for it later. But if we look at, say, Facebook Canvas, all customers really saw what was happening. They watched as we were all getting these annoying zombie bite apps, and they saw as apps they were using that they like were getting pulled. So it becomes more noticeable, not only to the developer community, to your partner community, but to uh, your users. So when it comes to applying product process, it's the same thing. Yeah. It's just riskier. And it's a more sensitive topic once you've decided that you're going to open up your UI. Yeah, it sounds like uh, if you apply the product mindset to it, that you want to open communication to your developers as well as your, your end users. So that way, if things are changing, like I imagine Facebook Canvas had like their top 10 partners that they were going to make sure they knew they were going to leave because they were making changes to like the whip bar or in, in the case of the Google's whip bar. So yeah, it sounds like if you apply those processes, the same process that we're doing with the creating love for developers, then we also need to create this love for the end user as well. So going a little bit of a tangent, when we first met downstairs, I saw you were on a pixel too as well. So like you are really ingrained in the idea of the web as an OS. So I'm curious, um, you're on a pixel using the, the Chrome OS. Like, what is the future for platforms like that? Do we see like web OS like that's not here anymore. Like the Chrome team's huge, so I know that thing's going to be around for a long time. So, me as a developer, what would I look first as far as tinkering with the embed frameworks? Yeah, uh, I am. I am a fan of the uh, of the Pixelbook and Chromebooks in general. I've I've been on Chromebooks for about four and a half years now, and yeah, just eat your own dog food. If you want to see the web as an OS happen, let's see what happens. If you're not limited to anything, anything local, one of the my favorite things about Chrome OS is when you want to download something, you can set your download folder to an online content management system. Okay. So you can drop it into Google Drive, you can connect it to Box, you can connect it to Dropbox, and then when you're downloading something, everything then is just just stored online. So if you do if you just do that and you work and learn to work entirely off of web services, yeah, it's entirely possible to even when working in tech and on developer-facing products to actually be able to live entirely on the web. In the context of embed frameworks, so we're starting to see success, finally, and that is going to allow for deeper integrations, not just connectors between applications, but platforms that are just designed for everything to plug in and really polish and customize your, your UI. A big challenge is that everyone's still experimenting, and if you're trying to build an integration, well, you can't build it cross-platform if we're treating every one of these web services as a platform. So connector tools, if we're looking at tools like Zapier and Ift, yeah. they made it a lot easier for consumers to just connect services. In order for that to happen, we really needed some sort of standardization to solidify more in the world of APIs. I had seen a lot of initiatives like Zapier 10 years ago, and the problem was it was too hard to keep up with APIs because there was so much inconsistency. We had a concept of RESTful API architecture, 
But we needed other things to enforce it, things like Swagger, now the Open API initiative, that made it easier for developers to design their APIs according to a standard. And once everything's designed to a standard, it's easier to uh, to integrate. Uh, there was you know, open social in the past, which was this attempt at iframing these embed frameworks and having a standard that worked across a few platforms. It was a little ahead of its time. So what I'm hoping to see now with the success of these embed frameworks is to see a standard form. I've been asking around many of the companies that have seen good results so far, and they're all emphasizing the same thing. They're still experimenting, they're still figuring things out, so they're not ready to adopt a standard or to encourage a standard, but they want to see it happen in time. When that happens, it starts to become more feasible to create an integration that with zero to minimal effort can actually work across a few of these services. That sounds great. And uh, yeah, so this was a, a really good conversation. Uh, I'm going to transition on some picks. I, I don't know if you had some links and things you want to share, if you wanted to share them now, uh, blog posts that you've written to pass on this topic. So a couple that I would recommend, one if you go to just thisisproductmanagement.com, there was an interview with me on just treating APIs like a product problem. Uh, when it comes to embedded integrations, if you go to uh, nordicapis.com, we're s- publishing um, a few articles now as part of a series specifically on the topic of uh, embed frameworks. Excellent. So now on the jam pick. So these are things that we're jamming on. I'm a pretty jammy individual and uh, like trying out a lot of different things. So if you don't mind, I'll go first and I'll let you go after me. Uh, so I have always poo pooed this thing, uh, which is kombucha. I've never tried it. I've always smelled it, and like I've always had like a gag reflex when it comes to vinegar for whatever reason. Like my wife, who loves salt and vinegar chips, will eat those around me, and I just like I can't stand the smell of vinegar. It just smells like cleaning solution. But for whatever reason, I was like, ah, oh, you know, I'm gonna try. I'm like try to be healthy. So there's like this kombucha that was at our office that's been there a while. So I figured I'd just try it because it was like it's either that or Lacroix, and it's called Doctor Brew Kombucha, and it was my first kombucha. I have no standard or experience of any other kombucha, but it was actually pretty good. And it was like some sort of like green tea and raspberry or something like that. But yeah, it was it was approachable and it wasn't like super gag reflexy for me. So I am now on the uh, hipster San Francisco train for drinking kombucha all day. But uh, I would recommend give it a try. You know, try new things all the time. And then my other pick is actually the original series for Star Trek. I've like tried to binge this a few times, like back in the day. Like I think even like Tech TV, I believe, or G Four, they were playing like the original series as like sort of in between like late night reruns. And I would like catch an episode and be like, oh, okay, that's cool, whatever. And then like I grew up with my mom; she was a big Star Trek person, so I used to watch her watch it. So like that was like my, my aversion to it. It's like oh, it's my mom's thing. I'm not gonna watch this. And I literally started watching. It was really cool. And the coolest thing is that I have a five year old. And he was like super engaged the entire time, and like it's almost like the acting is like exactly like what cartoons like the it's like on the same level of acting, like kind of over too much. And he was like engaged, just like hey, what's happening? Oh, why are they going there? Oh, why are they fighting this guy? So like we watched like two episodes, and like we ended up extending bedtime because he's like, oh, can we do watch another one? I was like, sure, all right, cool. And my wife's like, yeah, you know what you're doing to him, right? This is like it's going to be a path for him. And I was like, ah, it's cool. So yeah, so definitely, if you have kids, see if they like uh, the original series of Star Trek. So Jeremy, you want to give us your picks? Sure. 
huh, it's gonna be hard to hard to top those. Yeah, I, I don't watch too much TV, but I do watch uh, on YouTube random science documentaries, history documentaries, and uh, and cat videos. Okay. And uh, something I've actually started to do is there's some very interesting niche nerd channels just on like Disney and the history of certain like Disney movies and actually Disneyland, which I found actually highly applicable as I'm like continuing to improve this like product management course that I that I help out. Because uh, there's a lot to learn from in terms of you know how Disney gets detail oriented, how they design certain things, what mistakes they made, and, and what they've learned from it. As one example, there's uh, this thing actually hit tech news a couple of years back. The story of this thing called the Hatbox Ghost. Okay. Which basically, as the internet started to form these online forums and people had too much time on their hands, they started posting this old like marketing material, I guess, from when the Haunted Mansion first opened. And they found that there was a in, in the old like pamphlets for the Haunted Mansion, there's some character they describe that nobody sees in the Haunted Mansion. It's this ghostly figure that has this head that can disappear and reappear in this hat box that it's holding. And people were asking, like, what is this somewhere in the Haunted Mansion? Was there something like this in the Haunted Mansion? And some people found prototypes for it. And finally, it got popular enough uh, on, on forums that some old Disney Imagineer finally came out and said, okay, here's the deal. We did design this thing. We did build this thing. Unfortunately, we didn't test it until like a few days before opening the Haunted Mansion. So they tested it in a test environment but they didn't test it in production gotcha. until shortly before launch. And with the lighting in, in the ride, it wasn't going to work. So they had to pull this thing at the last minute, uh, but they couldn't pull the marketing material. And I actually teach us some product management. I basically tell people, don't pull a hat box ghost. Make sure to give yourself time to test so you don't end up in that situation, which we've been in often in startups where you're launching at the last minute, and next thing you know, you have to pull a feature because it wasn't ready, and you've already kind of announced that it's coming. Wow, that is uh, really good. That's deep. I'm intrigued to hear the rest of this course. Also, I rode that ride with my son, the same five-year-old that watched the original series, and definitely scary. Uh, I'm from Florida, so we actually did the Haunted Mansion, which is in uh, Disney World. It's based off the Eddie Murphy uh, movie uh, called The Haunted House or something like that. Actually, I think the movie is based off the ride. The ride goes back to yeah, no, yeah. The movie is based off the ride, but the ride in Disney World is based off the movie. So oh, they've like, adjusted it. So the movie itself is not as scary. So the ride's not as scary. So insider Disney knowledge, like Disney World, is actually not as scary as Disneyland. So just letting you know for all the five year olds in the in future. So yeah, um, any other picks? On the side, over the last few years, my, my, I guess my second obsession outside of like APIs and software is random consumer finance. Uh, I've helped a lot of friends just to like get their credit scores up. Big fan of uh, you know, retirement accounts, setting up IRAs and 401ks. And, and long story short, I learned in freelancing world that when you are freelancing, it's actually possible to save a lot more for retirement than when you're actually working full time. For most freelancers, it's a scary thing when you're starting off as a consultant. You have to pay for your own health care. You don't get that 401k. But if you actually look into it, there's a way of setting something up such that you can save a lot more. Like instead of the standard 19000 in your 401k, if you know what you're doing, uh, you can actually save three times as much. Really? Yeah. You can save well over $50,000 just in your 401k 
when you're freelancing, if you know how to set things up. So I do have a, a side thing. If anyone is interested, feel free to email me, and I can share more info as to how to do that. All right, so that's Jeremy Glassenberg. And uh, find him on LinkedIn, Twitter, he's all over the place. Also, the show notes will have a link to your, your bio in the show notes. So yeah, Jeremy, thanks so much for coming and talking about APIs and embeddable frameworks. Like This was actually enlightening. I didn't think about iGoogle for like the longest time until today. <laughs> so thanks you for reminding me of that existence. And uh, listeners, keep spreading the jam. That's all the time we have for today. If you're interested in being a guest on the show, or if you'd like to suggest a topic, find us on Twitter at Jamstack Radio. To learn more about Heavybit, visit heavybit.com. And while you're there, check out their library. It's packed with amazing talks on sales, marketing, product, and general management from founders of developer tools companies and other industry leaders. 